Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Well, today is uh, the last Sunday of the month, and so we always uh, do our study in the book of Revelation. And uh, so today, that's what we're going to do. And we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And uh, if you would, turn there, Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. And then once you have got your place there, you can stand as we read the Word of God together. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, This is what the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will never be hurt by the second death. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that today as we study your Word that we would be um, enlightened by the truth, Father, and that we would have the courage then to to look at our own lives and align our own lives with the truth of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. In this study, I've been very encouraged by the powerful witness of this church at Smyrna as Christ himself wrote this letter to encourage them in their day. And remember that each of these churches to which Christ writes an epistle, a letter, They are real historical churches, and they were dealing with real issues described in these letters. It was actually taking place. These churches were situated on the map in a clockwise order, um, interestingly on the same route that one would travel to each of these cities in that day. It's also important to note, however, that these churches were both good and bad examples of the church throughout church history. And by that, I mean that there are periods of time throughout history where the visible church looked more like the church at Ephesus, and there were times when the visible church looked or resembled more like the church at Sardis and so on. And in times of great uh, persecution, the visible church reflected the church at Smyrna. So to take it a step further even, we could look at each local church closely, even today, and we would find that there are um, those that more resemble the church of Philadelphia, and some may resemble the church of Pergamum. So we, as a local church, could actually look at this passage and look at the things that Christ had written to these churches, the things that he had against them, as well as the things that he corrected or encouraged them about, And then we could take a look at our own church family and see how we compare in those same areas of holiness or lack thereof. 
This church, the church of Smyrna, is one of only two churches of the seven that Jesus had nothing negative to say about them. There was no uh, condemnation whatsoever in his writing to this uh, church at Smyrna. There is a good reason for that. It's because this church was severely persecuted. They suffered greatly for the gospel. Now, in James, according to him, in chapter 1 of his epistle, verses 2 through 4, he says that various trials are for the testing of your faith, and that brings about perseverance. And perseverance through those trials will actually mature you, and you will continue to mature upon final perfection. Of course, we know that doesn't take place until we stand before God. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul reminds those folks of their suffering and how their suffering has produced endurance and perseverance, and he mentions great hope. Peter says that after you've suffered for a little while, the Lord will make you perfect. So we see this theme in Scripture in all of the letters uh, written, harmonizing the Scripture, and it confirms that this is in fact true for the body of Christ, true for the believer. And this little church in this city of Smyrna was right in the thick of it. They saw this to be true firsthand. They were being purified by the fires of trial and persecution. They were, they were a purged church, purged of error and purged of their sinful behavior. There was no way for them not to be because they suffered so greatly. The price of being a Christian can be very high in a hostile environment. You and I most likely have never faced anything like that kind of persecution in our walk with the Lord, but it most definitely is the reason that these believers in Smyrna had been purified. Their suffering had pushed them beyond the modern-day casual Christianity, the Bible Belt lip service that you and I are so accustomed to here in the South. They were, were neck deep in serious Christianity and they had to face life-threatening issues daily because of their faith. Their faith brought persecution, faith for which they were targeted or purpose, purposefully deprived. But in the hostility, they were humbled. In their poverty, they had become rich in ways that far exceeded the way most people measure uh, wealth. So we learn here a vital life lesson for all true followers of Christ. The church that suffers persecution will be purged and they will be purified. The posers won't stick around to be persecuted. False converts may put on a brave face in the beginning but counterfeit faith will not endure pain. You can be sure of that. Fake Christianity and fake Christians flee because they are unwilling to make the necessary sacrifices. So when the going gets tough, false Christians run away in fear. The fair-weather patriot loves to bask in the sunshine exuberantly waving their flag. They love the camaraderie. They love the warmth. They love the love. (laughs) 
But when the bullets start to fly and then when the, the bodies of loved ones begin to fall, when the prisoners of war are taken and brother turns against brother and mother turns against son, when the sun fades and the cold sets in and the battle requires crawling through the trenches and hiding under cover of darkness, when there is a price to pay, the fair weather patriot is nowhere to be found. Only the winter soldier will endure to fight the good fight of faith. Praise God that lines are being drawn. I'm thankful for the lines that are being drawn. Praise God that we are beginning to see people choose their side. Children of darkness or children of light. Taking a stand will bring persecution, trials, tribulation, and suffering, which will always destroy false faith. Always. But those exact things will most certainly strengthen true faith. Do you think that because you and I have enjoyed peace and prosperity in this geographical location during this specific time in human history that, that we are exempt from persecution? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now our persecution may be minuscule in comparison to what the believers at Smyrna were facing, but it will always be. That always be a fact that Christians will be persecuted to some degree or another. And the question is, will we pass the test? Will you and I pass the test? This church at Smyrna uh, there were no fair-weather Christians. These were the tried-and-true followers of Christ, the winter soldiers. And I'd like us to take a closer look at this text and see what the Lord Jesus has to say to this example of a church in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. He says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. So you have to understand, first and foremost, uh, that a letter in those days did not begin with Dear Smyrna and end with Sincerely Jesus, okay? That's not how they did it back then. They began a letter stating who wrote the letter and to whom the letter was written to right at the beginning. So notice here we see to the angel, and that word translated angel is the word angelos, which means messenger, okay? So there's really nothing in the text that would lead us to believe this is an actual spiritual being, an angel. Uh, more than likely, uh, the messengers in these letters were either lead pastors or elders in that particular church. However, there is another possibility for who these uh, messengers were. They could have been those who actually carried the letters, who were sent with the letters to each church. Those messengers, for instance, would have been sent uh, along this route in, uh, in Asia there. Seven messengers would have left from Patmos with John's written revelation in hand. And then as the group of carriers came to each corresponding city, they would deliver the entire letter of revelation to each church. And that messenger who delivered that letter would stay behind while the others went on to the cities, so on and so forth. The last one of which would be Laodicea. Either way, whether they're the pastors or elders or whether they were the carriers of the letters, 
We see Christ Himself in the midst of His church. These seven golden lampstands walking among them, and that's what it represents. He's inspecting each one with his all-seeing gaze, and based upon what he finds there, he's writing these letters for these specific seven churches. By divine revelation, through visions that were given to the Apostle John, written by his own hand, and then dictates that it go through the messenger of each of these churches. Also important to note here, very important to note, is what is written in these letters are synonymous with, quote, what the Spirit is saying to the churches. If you want to know what the Spirit is saying, read what was written by the Spirit in the first place. Moving on, this is what the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says. Now, this is so encouraging to me, but I would imagine far more encouraging to those dear believers there in Smyrna. And let me explain to you why. He makes clear to identify himself as the first and the last, which we've covered often. It's a statement about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Jesus existed before time ever began. And Jesus will exist after time has ended. He always has been... And he always will be. As John states in his opening of the book of Revelation in chapter 1, he is the one who was and who is and who is to come. That covers all bases. It actually transcends all the bases. This message is coming from Jesus, the Christ, the eternal one who transcends all time. He has always been. And be encouraged that he has something to, uh, good to say to the church at Smyrna. And here's a hint in the text, in the next statement. Not just the first and the last, but the one who was dead and who has come to life. Well, why does Christ describe himself in this way to this particular church? It's because of this intense time of trial and persecution that they had been facing. He's saying to them, I know that time is hard to endure. I know it is a particularly trying thing to live in the midst of the wickedness of this world. The minutes and the hours and the days stack on top of one another and it seems like things are getting worse and worse. But be encouraged, church. I was here Before time ever got going, and I'll be here after time has been laid aside and we step into eternity. So do you get it? He transcends times. He's eternal. He exists beyond all of this. He exists beyond all of these different circumstances. But here's the kicker. Because we rest in His righteousness and we are in Christ, we, you and I, are eternal as well. We are eternal as well. Beyond that, to this church who no doubt had endured the loss of their loved ones because of the gospel, because they had watched their fellows, uh, brothers and sisters persecuted, and some even unto death, Jesus encourages them by saying, I know about dying because I was dead. I died. We know, of course, not for long. He conquered death. He came back to life. And he's reminding them that 
even if they die at the hands of their persecutors, they won't go through anything that Christ Himself has not already endured or gone through. If they die for their faith, they are secure in Christ's eternal resurrection power. And folks, it doesn't matter what you are facing. Jesus has endured the worst of the worst. He suffered the most unjust, inhumane persecution anyone ever has. He was brutally murdered on that cross. He, he bore the sins of, all, uh, of sinners and enduring His own Father's wrath, which in fact, as I mentioned before, is the wrath that you deserved. That is what we deserve that He took upon Himself so that we could live eternally with Him. He endured the most extreme extent of suffering any human ever has in history. And he says to him, I was dead, but I beat it. I was dead, and now I'm alive. I've conquered death. In other words, church at Smyrna, you are in great hands. You are in great hands. Don't focus on the temporal threats of this life. Don't fear those who can kill the body. I am everlasting And so are you. What an encouragement to them. You know, it's interesting that we don't know how this church in Smyrna was founded. It isn't mentioned in the book of Acts specifically about being started. This letter is the only thing we have to inform us that there was a church in Smyrna. It was most likely founded during the three years that Paul spent in Ephesus because the Bible says in Acts 19.10... All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So this church was about 40 miles away from Ephesus, and we studied Ephesus last month. So as I mentioned earlier, on that travel route from Ephesus, Smyrna would have been the first city that they came to, the first stop. And here in Smyrna, though, life for a Christ follower was more dangerous than in most of the other surrounding cities. There Caesar was proclaimed as a god, and he was to be worshipped as a deity. And if you failed to bow the knee to Caesar as Lord, you could lose your life. Historians write that in Smyrna there were mass executions of Christians who refused to acknowledge Caesar as their Lord. Now, this puts in perspective when we read the, the passage that tells us to uh, proclaim Jesus as our Lord. This is what it's talking about. Is He the supreme Lord and Master of your life under penalty of death? No matter what you would faith, is He your Lord? That's what it's talking about. Not Not a very quick prayer that you pray, a lip service that you give. It is Lordship salvation. The word Smyrna means myrrh. And you've heard that word before, especially if you know Bible basics. In Matthew 2, when the wise men came, they brought myrrh as a gift to the baby Jesus. It was a perfume of sorts. It was often used in preparing dead bodies for burial. So the fact that they brought this to Christ when He was born was prophetic in its nature that this child just born was actually born to one day die. These Wise men were wise because they knew what prophecies said about this Messiah and what he would do. 
In Mark chapter 15, Christ was offered wine mixed with myrrh, mixed with Smyrna, if you will. In John 19, when Jesus was buried, his body was prepared with these spices, one of which was Smyrna. It was myrrh. Myrrh had to be extracted from a tree. It had a, a fragrance to it, but the only way that you could get to that fragrance the only way that you could extract it from the tree is to crush the tree. To be persecuted is to be under great pressure. And I don't believe that this is an accident that this church, the church of myrrh, was the persecuted church mentioned in these seven letters. God permitted Satan to test that church, to pressure them, and in so doing, they were purified and they were purged. And the life they led before the Lord was a sweet smelling fragrance to Christ. And today, it may surprise you that the population of that city, Smyrna, is about 3 million people. But today, that city is called Izmir, Turkey. It's the same ancient city. That great city of Ephesus and that great church of Ephesus that we studied uh, last time, it's gone. Nowhere to be found. And, and if you go back to where it was, there's just a pile of rubble. It's just a tourist attraction. But today, there in that city of Smyrna, there are still Christians. There's still a remnant that was started way back then, these folks worshiping and serving Jesus, even in our modern day. This church was strong. They were galvanized by the shed blood of saints who followed Christ in His suffering. They were fortified by their devotion to the Lord. But why was this church in particular targeted? As I said before, there in that city was a cult of sorts that worshipped the emperor. They worshipped Caesar as a god. And so they targeted and killed those who would not join in that Caesar worship. And so here's how they implemented that. Every year, each and every citizen in that city had to burn incense on Caesar's altar and declare Caesar as their Lord, as their supreme master. And once they did this, they were given a certificate of authenticity, if you will, to prove that they had done this. So anyone who was issued this certificate, uh, or who was not issued this certificate, who walked around without these papers or who, who didn't have them available, were under constant threat of persecution and even death. This perhaps is the reason why we see in verse 9, Christ says, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Remember that Jesus is walking through the midst of these lampstands and these lampstands represent His church. His eyes are like a flame of fire, meaning He can see everything. He's the great inspector. And He writes to this beaten down church, I know your tribulation. I see it. You are not forgotten. I know every single detail about you. And I love this imagery of Christ right smack in the middle of His true church. And that didn't end back then, folks. It's still going on today. He's still active in His church today and has been active in every true local body of believers from the beginning of the church. He knows the pressure that they face. 
He knows that they were being crushed, but not destroyed. He knows the pain and the challenges and the heartache. He says in verse 9, I know your poverty. Now it's interesting, there are two words in Greek that is translated as poverty in Scripture. And one looks to me to be a word like pennies. Like pennies, right? Basically means you aren't wealthy, but you can cover your essential needs. So you got a roof over your head, you got food in your belly, you got clothing on your back. That's what that word means, but that's not the word that's used here. The word used here is tochos, and it means you have nothing at all. It is absolute poverty, complete destitution. So Jesus writes, I know in this tribulation you feel poor, you feel impoverished, but you are rich. You are actually wealthy. The reality is that you are wealthy beyond your imagination. Remember, he calls the church in Laodicea the poor, rich church, right? He says, you believe that you are rich, but you do not know that you are poor, miserable, blind, wretched, and naked. And he tells them the reality of their situation, that because you have physical wealth, you need to understand that's not the spiritual reality. Well, this is the opposite. He tells them that you are wealthy even though you seem poor. And then in verse 9, he continues as he mentions the Jews who blaspheme or accuse the believers in Smyrna falsely. He writes, I know your tribulation, your poverty, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now these were devout Jews in that day, worshiping in their synagogues, and and very devout in their religious practices, probably very knowledgeable in the law. But they had rejected Jesus. And here's the main thing that I want you to understand about these Jews is that they still believed they were doing the work of God. In their own minds, their actions were justified because they were doing it for God. But here, Jesus exposes them to the truth. They are a synagogue of Satan. They are secret agents of the enemy opposing Christ and Christ's true church. Now these Jews relentlessly slandered the Christians. They slandered them for cannibalism, saying they eat flesh and they drink blood because of communion. They slandered them for lust and immorality because they greeted one another with a holy kiss and held love feasts. They called them home wreckers because one family member would respond to the gospel. They would make Christ their Lord and it would bring a sword into that household. The division that the gospel naturally causes and cause brother to turn against brother or father against son or daughter against father. All of those things. And so they called them home records. They, they accused them of being atheists because they gave no allegiance to the emperors of Rome, like Caesar. They even went to the Romans and gave them information that led to the believer's arrest and eventual death. So many of these Jews, supposedly doing the work of God, were hell-bent to destroy the faith of those who follow Jesus Christ. And how devastating it must have been for those Christians to see those Jews claiming to be following and serving God but all the while conspiring to have them killed. 
They did the exact same thing to Jesus, didn't they? And that's exactly what Jesus said they would do. They hate me, they're going to hate you. They killed Christ, they're going to try to kill you. And Christ knew how they were hurting beyond their physical pain. Their hearts were broken, but He told them the truth. He didn't spare them the truth. He told them like it was. He says, basically, it's not going to get better soon, but it's going to be over soon for some of you. So if you continue there in verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Do not fear. Don't be afraid of what's about to happen. Now, if Christ said that to you today, how would you be feeling? Don't fear what's about to happen to you. He says, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. I don't think we have to solve a puzzle here. I think that for these believers in Smyrna, it meant exactly historically what it says. Some of those folks would soon be thrown into prison. They would stay there under heavy persecution for 10 days, upon which then they would likely be put to death in prison. It's exactly what it says. This is actually Jesus prophesying about the future of this church. Many of the believers there, he's saying this is about to happen. I'd like to point out some very important theology, though, in this passage that's often confused, especially in this particular area of, uh, of the United States of America. Contrary to popular belief, Satan and Jesus are not mano in mano fighting head to head. They are not a Christian version of the yin and the yang, good versus evil, duking it out as worthy adversaries. That is a false picture of what is going on. That's called dualism, and it's a pagan religious belief. And I know this may be a challenge to some of your theology, but here it is in black and white. Christ, who is above all in power, dominion, and might, allows Satan to do what he does. The enemy cannot do one thing without Jesus Christ allowing it to happen. And this is the resurrected Christ writing letters, laying out the truth for New Testament churches filled with New Testament believers. Not only that, these believers were the, you could say, the creme de la creme, the, the top of, of the class in their devotion. It was an example for all. They are the perfect examples of pure faith in Christ in the midst of trial and persecution, in the midst of this intense uh, fire that they would face daily, poverty and pain. So if it's true, in fact, that strong faith is the secret weapon for defeating Satan, you can say not today, Satan, all you want, okay? But if that's a fact, then surely the faith of these believers would have destroyed any attempt of the enemy to hurt them that no weapon formed against them would prosper, right? I know that there are many who want their Jesus to deliver them out of the hands of the enemy all the time, in every situation, even in their temporary afflictions. But that isn't the way true faith works. We see here 
in black and white, in God's Word, in the New Testament, from Christ's own words. Faith endures in the middle of the most intense persecution, trial, and poverty in all forms of suffering. In fact, it is the definition of faith to continue to be filled with faith in Christ regardless of the situation you're in, whether it is good or bad. I love the music today. It just, the words of the songs just, you know, really went along perfectly with the message in, in the message today. I hope that you guys are not surprised to hear that God allows Satan to test us. And there's not just one isolated example. In Luke 22, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, quote, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you like wheat. In other words, Satan is after you, Peter. He's come to me and he's asked me for permission to sift you like wheat. And John MacArthur always says, Peter was like, you told him no, right? Right? But all Jesus said was this. How, what would you think if this is what Jesus said to you? Well, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. I'm not going to deliver you from the devil. I'm going to allow him to test you. And I will, I will pray on your behalf that your faith will not fail in the midst of that persecution. In Job, Satan went before the throne of God. He had been roaming the earth, it says. And we know from other passages that he is roaming the earth as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And God said to the devil, Have you thought about Job? Have you tried Job? You may be asking, why in the world would God be giving the devil suggestions? No, thank you, Lord. (laughs) Don't point me out, right? The answer is because God knows best and God's sovereign plan is always the best plan. Here's the question when thinking about any of this stuff. Do you trust God? Do you believe that he is perfectly righteous? Do you believe that he is perfectly just? Do you believe that God is always good? And if you believe those things, then what is the issue In leaving your life in his hands. Just trust God and trust that his perfect goodness is exactly what you need in any given moment. Amen? It's not hard. God didn't want to hurt Job. God knew that through the fires of Job's trials, he would come out on the other side purged, purified, and more faithful and holy. God knows who his faithful followers are. He knew Job would endure, and he knew that Job's faith would make a point to the enemy. And here's the point that Job's faith and your faith and my faith makes to the devil when we endure. That there are those who will never bow to Satan. There are some with a faith that makes them absolutely impervious to the enemy's schemes and his attacks. Satan can do his absolute worst, but their faith is in Christ and not in themselves. They believe Jesus and not the enemy, and that must really chap the devil's hide. To see that there are people who will not bow, who will not bend, who will not break. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When we go through the fire, there is one like the Son of Man standing with us. Amen? 
For some reason, folks, we've gotten the wrong idea in this time of prosperity and peace in this country. Smooth sailing and peaceful waters and living in the lap of luxury is not evidence of your strong faith. Believing that is incredibly dangerous for the soul. The evidence of true faith is proven in our trials as we trust God and believe everything He has ever said about our time here on earth and what lies in store for us in eternity in spite of our temporary circumstances. We read earlier Hebrews eleven thirty four through 40, and it's an amazing passage. It puts in perspective the reality of our situation as we walk out our Christian faith in this life. You see, you have no guarantee of sunshine as opposed to walking through storms. You have no guarantees. Using the Old Testament saints as an example, this passage tells us that, quote, some believers will escape. It's not a testament to their faith because they escape. They don't get the stamp of approval just because they escape. That's not on them. It's not something they did. That's according to God's plan. Some believers were impervious to fire. Some of these faithful escaped death by the sword. Some were given supernatural strength. Some were mighty in war and caused their enemies to to flee in fear. And even some women, it says, received back their dead in in miraculous resurrection. But that was not the fate of all of those who remained steadfast and faithful. Hebrews 11.35, I'm going to repeat what we read earlier. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. They knew in their hearts that if I die right now, I'm about to step into eternity with my Lord, looking ahead to to the resurrection. It says others experienced mockings and floggings and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not even worthy. Wandering in desolate places and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. I think of the first century Christians fleeing persecution who, who would not let anything keep them from being together in worship. They would crawl into catacombs with dead bodies and have worship together in the catacombs. It says, and all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. The idea is that they didn't bank on the fact that they were going to be delivered in the temporal, but that the reward and what was coming was eternal and that that's where the promise lied. This is why he says here, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will never be hurt by the second death. You put your hand, your life in the hands of the one who gave his life. You're in the best hands eternally. You will never be taken out of his hand. You see, the truth is, While some may live relatively easy lives and never face real life-threatening persecution, there are still others, even today, who are. There have been others who have historically 
throughout the church age, and there are those who will in the future. There's no way around it. The price paid for devotion and faith in Christ is often paid in blood, tears, and sorrow. But again, folks, these are temporary circumstances bound to time. And one day we will lose the shackles of time and step into eternity with our Savior forevermore. Our promise is that our reward is eternal. There's something better in store. The crown of life is eternity. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out the world around us is rapidly changing. It seems it's been, to me at least, exponential in the last five years. But can you think through this logically with me this morning? Can you at least see the very real possibility of the same kind of slander that was happening by the Jews and those who supposedly represented God then were leveling at the Christians there in Smyrna, that that sort of thing could be leveled at us as well? If we do not fall in line, if we do not define love the way the world and many churches these days define love, if we do not define the truth the way the world and many churches today define truth, if we do not define life the way the world and many churches today define life, if we do not define morality and virtue the way the world and many churches today define it. You see, there are leaders today within Christianity that are not unlike those Jews of old who thought they were doing the work of God, but because they have abandoned the truth of God's Word, because they have adopted a counterfeit gospel and and. There are many, myriads of counterfeit gospels, to name a few, the prosperity gospel, a social justice gospel, or perhaps a legalistic gospel. They instead have become a synagogue of Satan. They are unwittingly separating themselves from Christ's true church. There is a line that must not be crossed by true followers of Christ. And I believe we are rapidly approaching that line. We are rapidly approaching a time of decision. What lies ahead cannot be known by any of us, but honestly, whatever happens in the remainder of our lives doesn't really matter when it comes to our faith. We'll either trust God's word and live accordingly or we won't. It's that simple. As far as I'm concerned, me personally... I humbly pray for the hand of the refiner to purify his church. And he will purify his church. Make no mistake about it. If it takes persecution to purge and purify us, then so be it. My question to you this morning is, are you prepared? When you are crushed, will your life be a sweet-smelling savor? the Lord will we pass the test if we are in Christ we will I pray that to be true amen let's pray